what Freud called metapsychology uh, was an attempt to describe the underlying functional organization of these abstract entities uh, like memory systems, perceptual systems, executive systems, and so on. Uh, it, in other words, the very same things as we are interested in uh, in cognitive neuroscience today. You know, there's a it, we don't study the brain as a as a thing. Uh, you know, as a as a as a visual, tangible thing, we study its functions in order to be able to infer its functional organization. That is the common ground between uh, neuroscience and psychoanalysis. This the functional organization of of what Freud called the mental apparatus. Hello, my geeselings. This is Mother Goose Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number one hundred nineteen. And this episode is with Mark Solms. And parenthetically, I just really love this conversation. Not that I don't really love every single episode of Robinson's podcast, but I like this one a lot. And Mark is professor of neuropsychology at the Neuroscience Institute at the University of Cape Town. And he's also a psychoanalyst. And this is quite relevant because we start off by discussing some of Mark's earlier research on sleep and dreaming and then the origins of neuropsychoanalysis. And though Mark will do a much better job explaining this than I will, neuropsychoanalysis is roughly the program of identifying the neural substantiations of Freudian theory. And we talk about this because it leads into his current research on the neural underpinnings of consciousness. This is a super rich episode, both scientifically and philosophically. Uh, we talk a lot about David Chalmers' hard problem of consciousness, and then Mark's interactions with Daniel Dennett. And then we also talk a lot about neuroscience because Mark collaborated with Carl Friston. But a lot of the content of this episode draws from Mark's terrific recent book. And I, I sing it a lot of praises in the episode as well, but that's because it's great. And it's The Hidden Spring, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness, which I really highly recommend. And of course, you will find a link to it in the description. So there is a Discord, which you can find through my website if you want to suggest guests or chat with the geeselings. And comments like subscribes are endlessly appreciated. I have another channel Twitch and YouTube on Twitch and YouTube called Robinson Eats, and then a couple of t-shirts like this one, aptly called the Snakey Tea on robinsonsfashionempire.com. But without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Mark. Right at the outset, I think it is so important to both your work and the subject of the hidden spring. And since many people will be unfamiliar with the concept, which you introduced, I think we should start with just what is quite broadly neuropsychoanalysis. Um, well, neuropsychoanalysis arose from my frustration uh, when I first trained in neuropsychology which was in the early 1980s, um, you might think psychology will be about the psyche. Um, and what is the psyche? That is to say, what is the mind, if not first and foremost something subjective, something that experiences, something that it is like to be. 
Um, but the neuropsychology that I was taught, not only did it make no reference to subjective experience, when I asked questions um, about subjectivity, uh, like, for example, you know, when being taught about the cortical mechanisms of vision, um, I asked, but why does it feel like something to see? Why, why do we, unlike cameras, experience uh, the visual information processing that we um, perform. And I'm just using vision. I could give you many other similar um, equivalent um, functions. Uh, and I was sort of discouraged from asking such questions. Uh, I, I was told uh, not to ask such questions. They are bad for your career. Um, so psychology, um, you know, neuropsychology, uh, the word psychology there um, is a very problematical one because um, it, it, at least is in the in the era that I trained, uh, it was still very much influenced by behaviorism, and even after the cognitive revolution, which at least allowed us to talk about what goes on inside the black box, as it were, um, we talked about it in a very desiccated way. You know about these functions that we looked at from a sort of third-person point of view, um, the mechanisms of, let's stick with the example of visual information processing, but really nothing uh, about the actual phenomenal experiential feel um, of being uh, a seeing person. So um, I, I cast my uh, eye around looking for uh, another a take on psychology, uh, a, a, a perspective which um, at, at least acknowledged the centrality of subjective experience to the science of the mind. And um, in psychoanalysis, I found an approach which not only acknowledged it, but took it as its starting point. Um, that was also influenced by the fact that I was doing research on the brain mechanisms of dreaming. Um, and the reason I did that was because the only aspect of consciousness that was a sort of respectable topic uh, in the neuropsychology of the 1980s was a consciousness in the sense of sleep versus waking or, or coma versus stupor, you know, versus thundered consciousness, cloud, those sorts. The level of consciousness was a respectable topic. So... Um, I did my doctoral uh, research on brain mechanisms of dreaming because that's the subjective aspect uh, of sleep. That's the, uh, in fact, it's a, a fantastically interesting fa uh, 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 fact that the unconsciousness of sleep is punctuated by these conscious experiences called dreams. So um, the research I was doing on the brain mechanisms of dreaming led me to. Uh, realize or recognize that some of the claims uh, of psychoanalysis in respect of dreams were not as far-fetched as uh, as they had initially appeared to be so I I was I, I think from these two directions I was drawn to psychoanalysis the one was I was doing sleep and dream research uh, I, I made some unexpected discoveries which suggested that maybe the psychoanalytic approach, deserved a little bit more serious attention than we'd been giving it. Um, and then looking at psychoanalysis, I realized, well, this was an approach to the mind 
that that took uh, that took subjectivity seriously. So neuropsychoanalysis is just um, a word that refers to a, an approach to neuropsychology, which which doesn't mean neurobehaviorism or neurocognition. It means you know, neurosubjectivity, the most interesting aspect of neuropsychology. That, that that's a, um, I, I hope an adequate answer. I mean, I, there's a lot more I could say, but that is the the absolute essence of the of the thing. No, no, no. It's it's quite adequate. I have a few thoughts. So first, when you mention the other psychologists, or perhaps it was neuroscientists who were saying, "Don't ask these questions. It's it's bad for your career." I just spoke with David Spiegel here at Stanford, who does a lot of hypnotherapy, and his father was the uh, I don't know. I mean, I know Freud did some did some work in hypnosis, but I think David David's father brought hypnotherapy into the modern four. And when he started doing it, people were saying, "Don't ask these questions. Stick to psychoanalysis." So it's funny how like the trends in psychology how they shift in this way. But just to clarify then, or, or paraphrase, so. Neuropsychoanalysis arises out of this tension between the third person view of the mind that something like neuroscience gives us and then our first person experience of feeling and sensation because it seems like the former can never get to it in a way or doesn't treat it adequately. No, that's exactly uh, right. Uh, psychoanalysis, for all of its faults, because, you know, let me uh, state. Uh, as quickly as possible, that I'm not a true believer in the, in the sense that so many psychoanalysts are. They, they they really have sequestered themselves from the mainstream mental science and haven't stayed abreast of you know everything that we've learned since 1939, <laughs> and which is when Freud died. Um, so, um, for all of its faults, psychoanalysis has developed. Um, from its method, uh, which is free association, in other words, a sort of a sort of naturalistic sampling of the stream of consciousness in in relatively controlled conditions. Uh, from that, uh, uh, they've developed a whole um, theoretical uh, infrastructure with with a, with a vocabulary, a conceptual vocabulary for for thinking about and talking about. Uh, the, the 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 subjective um, uh, perspective upon the mind, and I thought that's a good starting point. If we're going to have a neuroscience that that um, can accommodate these things, let's build upon what that tradition uh, bequeathed us. And so, I spent a good deal of my scientific life trying to find the neural correlates of the the. Um, major psychoanalytic uh, concepts derived from the study of, of subjective, uh, the lived life of the mind. Um, and that naturally, of course, means the reverse translation too, uh, trying to uh, bring into psychoanalysis um, what we've learned in the neurosciences about the very same things that they're interested in uh, using other methods. So it's it's been an attempt to sort of bring the psyche into neuropsychology on the one hand, but then also to bring more scientific rigor to bear um, on psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. Well, you, 
You mentioned that you're not a mainstream psychoanalyst in the sense that you've actually taken in the developments of neuroscience since Freud's death. But one of the most fascinating elements of the hidden spring, I mean, before we get into consciousness, for me was that you think of Freud as a neuroscientist, which I don't think is in the zeitgeist anymore and dispelling this or perhaps explaining in just what sense you mean this should do a lot to dispel people's misconceptions about Freud as a, like a total mystic who wasn't doing science. Well, um, I, I told you that when I was doing my dream research, I became uh, aware of um, the extent to which Freud had um, made some claims about it, which were consistent with the, what I was finding in in my research. Uh, the, the, I became aware of that uh, through a seminar that was taught, in fact, by a philosopher. Um, but it was a seminar on a unpublished or unpublished during Freud's lifetime. Um, uh, he was doing a seminar on an unpublished paper uh, or manuscript. Uh, that was entitled A Project for a Scientific Psychology, which was Freud's attempt penned in 1895 uh, to, um, to delineate what the uh, neurophysiological mechanisms might be of the sorts of things he was observing clinically. When I say the sorts of things he was observing clinically, I mean what he was observing clinically as a neurologist studying what we nowadays call functional neurological disorders. Um, the word functional neurological disorders uh, covers, um, centrally covers what in Freud's day was called hysteria. Patients uh, with so-called hysteria present to neurologists uh, because they have what appear to be neurological symptoms, paralysis, um, amnesias, um, you know, uh, uh, loss of the ability to speak and so on. So they look like neurological patients, but then it turns out there's, there's no structural uh, damage to their brains. So that's why they're called functional neurological disorders. So Freud as a neurologist uh, became interested in these patients, which by the way, I mean, I work in a neurology department. Uh, we see them every week. I mean, they, this is not an uncommon condition. Um, so it's it's no surprise, uh, and it's fascinating. It's no surprise that Freud, you know, was working with those sorts of patients. But the point I'm emphasizing is that he was a neurologist, um, and uh, he was a neurologist after uh, he was a research neuroscientist. Uh, he 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 went to medical school really with scientific interests rather than clinical ones, uh, and he did some extremely um, Good research on what uh, what is probably best called neurohistology, in other words, the structure of the nerve cell. Then he did very good basic neuroanatomical research, starting with very lowly invertebrate creatures and 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 low vertebrates, uh, primitive fishes um, like um, uh, the lamprey, uh, studying their spinal cords. Uh, and the uh, and the intimate structure of the spinal cord, gradually moving up toward the brain stem, and with that, gradually moving uh, to human brains, um, until 
uh, he 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 realized he wasn't um, going to be able to make a living. He wanted to get married. He wasn't going to be able to make a living as a neuroanatomist, and so he went. Uh, uh, he he took more seriously the clinical part of his studies, and uh, then qualified as a neurologist and made fundamental contributions to the study of um, cerebral palsies. You know the. Um, the movement disorders of childhood, um, and ultimately moved up uh, the, to the higher cortical functions and, and did a, a very good study on aphasia um, in 1891. So given that background, you know, the background of a histologist, an anatomist, a, 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 a clinical neurologist making you know, a s- substantial contributions to the field, and ultimately a neuropsychologist uh, when he studied uh, um, uh, language, brain mechanisms of language. It wasn't surprising that he wanted to um, he wanted to understand so-called hysteria um, in in neurophysiological terms, and that's why he wrote that project, which is the first of his papers that I read. Um, now, uh, ironically, uh, the reason that Freud abandoned uh, neurophysiological approaches uh, was because in his attempt to delineate the brain mechanisms of functional neurological disorders, he had to recognize that it was pure speculation. Uh, In 1895, we just didn't know enough, or we knew practically nothing uh, about the dynamics of the brain, uh, the the functional organization of the brain uh, when there's no structural lesion. We just knew next to nothing about it. So he was wildly speculating in that 1895 paper and was then compelled to recognize against uh, his his own uh, prejudices uh, he was compelled to recognize that the and this is why I say it's ironical that if you want to have an empirical approach to the problem you should stick to psychological data because that's the only data that we had um, and so he abandoned uh, reluctantly, uh, his attempts to um, to understand these things neurologically, but always said from then onwards um, that one day uh, they will, when there are advances in methods, um, that uh, we, it will be possible to to study the apparatus of the mind, as he called it, um, you know, f- from a physiological and anatomical point of view. And so I recognised that that. Uh, th- that future that he was looking forward to, that I was living in that future, um, you know. So, so uh, uh, that's why I'm, I made it my business to to try to rejoin psychoanalysis with the neurosciences, uh, which is what Freud had always imagined uh, would be possible. I'll tell you one other thing: uh, I am actually in the middle now uh, of uh, translating all of Freud's neuroscientific writings into English. It's going to come out as a four-volume set, because there are a lot uh, of uh, neuroscience. Freud published from 1877 until 1900 uh, in neuroscience and and neurology journals. And if you count uh, the small review articles, uh, there are over 200 titles. So, you know, Freud was very deeply steeped in the neuroscience uh, uh, and neurology of his time. And uh, when one of his psychoanalytic um, colleagues uh, in 1936 um, the guy's name was Rudolf Brun, who was also a neurologist, uh, d- became aware that Freud had p- 
produced so much uh, neuroscientific research in his early years. Uh, he, he said to Freud, you know, why, why, why don't you ever talk about this? This is fantastic stuff. And Freud said, well, at least I hope it will make people realize that I didn't pull psychoanalysis out of my hat. <laughs> uh, it, parenthetically, is that what you're doing? In, I, you mentioned that you're on your sabbatical in Germany. Is, that, is it mainly to be working on these translations? That's exactly what I'm doing here, yes. Oh, very nice. And then, yeah, I guess just to paraphrase again and make sure that I'm totally on the right page. But what struck me when I was reading The Hidden Spring again was that, this is the paraphrase part, he totally, Freud totally believed that the mind was biological, mediated in the brain. So again, nothing mystical, but that really just due to the limits of neuroscience at the time, he sought another method to get at the underlying unconscious dimensions of the mind and that this is what psychoanalysis emerged from but as you just said he suspected or expected that at some point science would develop to the point where these things would merge again and that is what you're working on now yeah um he um he when you speak of the unconscious dimensions of the mind i would like to just elaborate a little bit on that point uh freud said uh, that, uh, that what he was interested in doing uh, is inferring from the conscious phenomenology of mental life. He wanted to infer uh, what the mechanisms were that underpinned those uh, uh, conscious states. He called that meta-psychology, in other words, beyond psychology in the sense of beyond consciousness, what lies beyond consciousness. And he said, since you're a philosopher, you might find it amusing. He said, I want to transform metaphysics into metapsychology. In other words, he wants to have, uh, rather than a philosophy of mind, you know, he wants to have a science of mind uh, where uh, we infer the underlying uh, uh, laws governing uh, the observable surface of, of conscious phenomena. And um, the point I'm leading up to is this, that what Freud called meta-psychology uh, was an attempt to describe the underlying functional organization of these abstract entities uh, like memory systems, perceptual systems, executive systems, and so on. Uh, it, it, in other words, the very same things as we are interested in uh, in cognitive neuroscience today. You know, there's a, it, we don't study the brain as a, as a thing, uh, you know, as a, as a, as a visual tangible thing, we study its functions in order to be able to infer its functional organization. That is the common ground between uh, neuroscience and psychoanalysis, This the functional organization of, of what Freud called the mental apparatus. Um, and uh, I think that um, if we only approach it from an external point of view, in other words, if we treat the brain only as an object and not also as a subject, then we are going to miss something fundamental about this part of nature. Because uh, as far as we know, it is the only part of nature that has subjective experience. Uh, presumably, there's some reason why it feels like something to be a brain and not like anything else. Uh, in other words, nothing else feels like being itself. It's only brains that have this 
this remarkable capacity. And uh, presumably it evolved for a reason. Presumably subjective experience does something. And uh, if we leave that out of account, I think we're going to uh, be grossly misled in terms of our understanding of the functional organization of the brain. Um, if we don't build into our understanding of its mechanisms, what can be learned about those mechanisms from the subjective point of view? Uh, in other words, what can be learned about wh what the subjective manifestations are all about? Uh, th then I think um, we'll never understand the brain if we treat it as if we're the same as the liver. No, that's a that's an extremely interesting point. I mean, we're not just trying to dissect brains and figure out their ultimate makeup because that would just, I mean, ultimately devolve into something like physics, but we're trying to understand what it does. And that's all about inference. It's all about connecting what we observe in the brain to, I think what you said, what it, what it does. And that comes from something like psychoanalysis where you're really getting at the subject and what 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 feeling is going on what, what is in consciousness yeah let me let me be clearer than i think i was I, I i'm actually saying two things there the one is that we're not just interested in observing the organ we're wanting to infer its underlying functional organization that's the first thing but the second thing i'm saying is that that underlying functional organization must also explain uh, why the brain has a subjective aspect you know why does the brain, why is there something it's like to be a brain and not something it's like to be anything else? I'm saying there must be something fundamental about the brain uh, that, that makes it sentient. And uh, so I'm saying I don't think we will understand the mechanisms governing the behavior of the brain if we don't centrally uh, include in our attempts to understand those mechanisms, uh, why those mechanisms give rise to experience. Mm -hmm. Well, now that you've raised the question, why is there something it's like to be a brain? I think we can turn more to the focus of the hidden spring. So maybe we should begin then with the purpose of the book and your investigation. And that raises the question of what is the hard problem of consciousness? If that is what you're trying to show ultimately is not uh, so hard as it seems. Yes, so the hard problem of consciousness as formulated by David Chalmers um, is that an understanding uh, of, the, of the, the very thing we've just been talking about, an understanding of the mechanisms um, which govern the behavior of the brain, he says, will never explain phenomenal uh, subjective experience. He, he seems to suggest that experience uh, lives in some parallel universe uh, that 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 is not reducible uh, to the laws um, of the, uh, that sort of natural mechanistic laws that we that we use to explain everything else in nature so he's saying that neuroscience um, goes about and including cognitive neuroscience goes about its business as if it were studying anything else uh, in nature in other words it it, 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 look, it takes the phenomena uh, then uh, reduces it, those phenomena to an explanatory causal model, uh, a, 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 a mechanistic account of the functions underpinning the phenomena, uh, and then it thinks its job is done. Uh, and uh, Chalmers says its its job is not done uh, in in respect of one crucial uh, fact about the brain, 
namely uh, that it experiences, because those mechanisms do not account for the experience. Why does he say that? Well, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll quote in simplified form, because I, 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 I don't want to go down all the rabbit holes, but in simplified form, I'll quote um, uh, Frank Jackson's knowledge argument, uh, which, which um, Chalmers invokes in this very um, respect. Um, Jackson said, imagine a visual neuroscientist named Mary uh, who knows everything there is to know about the functional mechanisms of visual information processing. She knows everything that goes on from the light waves being transduced uh, into neural impulses, uh, where they're transmitted through the lateral geniculate to the cortex, what the, how the cortex, the visual cortex, processes this information in multiple different streams. She knows all of that, all about the functional mechanisms of vision, but she's blind. So she knows nothing about what it is like to see. And then one day, uh, the gift of sight uh, is bestowed on her. And so she suddenly, uh, after all these years of studying vision, uh, now she experiences vision. And uh, Jackson's uh, argument is, at that point, Mary will learn something utterly new about vision, that even though she knew everything about its functional mechanistic organization, how visual information is processed, uh, that knowledge gave her no uh, preparedness for the, the phenomena that she's now dealing with, namely uh, the, the qualitative experience of seeing, of what it is like to see. And the inference that Jackson draws from this and that Chalmers builds upon is that therefore a functional mechanistic account of what the brain does does not explain why it feels like something to be a brain. Um, and then uh, there's a further uh, inference that uh, therefore, the experiencing must exist in some other dimension. You know, it must not be reducible to the ordinary mechanistic laws of science like everything else is. So that was my starting point was, um, is, that, is that really so? Is it really so that, that conscious experience is not part of nature that, that, that can be understood uh, in the same way as all other parts of nature uh, can be? Uh, and um, my um, the starting point of my attempts to tackle that that problem uh, was the observation uh, that uh, uh, vision, uh, which I must say it's not by accident that Frank Jackson spoke of Mary a visual neuroscientist, because the main uh, um, effort uh, since um, well since Crick really since the early 1990s. The main effort to find the neural correlate of consciousness um, has focused upon vision. Uh, we, we understand uh, the, the cortical mechanisms of vision better than we do any other perceptual modality. So the idea was, Crick's idea was that if we can crack that, how does the cortex generate visual experience? Then we can generalize from there to experience uh, altogether, in other words, to consciousness more broadly. My, my belief is that's the wrong place to start uh, for the reason uh, that vision is not an intrinsically conscious process. Uh, you can see perfectly well without being conscious of what you're seeing. Um, and in fact, that is why Mary is able to understand all of the mechanisms uh, whereby vision occurs, 
because vision can occur and does occur all the time in us uh, without any awareness. Some visual processes are conscious, but the vast majority of our visual information processing is not conscious. What is more, um, the consciousness uh, in vision, to the extent that vision is conscious, uh, it's not intrinsic to the cortex. The cortex is not intrinsically uh, consciousness generating. The, the information processing that goes on in the cortex is rendered conscious by it being activated, by it being aroused and modulated from below, from brainstem structures, uh, uh, in particular the reticular activating system. Now, the reticular activating system, from whence all consciousness flows, uh, it, it's an absolute prerequisite for any form of consciousness that um, it has to be activated from the reticular activating system. This part of the brain, unlike the cortex in general and the visual cortex in particular, its whole function is to generate consciousness, not visual information processing, but rather the rendering conscious of visual and all other forms of information processing. So I thought that uh, we'd started in the wrong place, uh, looking at vision and cortical vision uh, as our model example of consciousness uh, was an unfortunate place to start because it is not an intrinsically conscious process. So I, I, I started from the, the, the other end of the um, apparatus, as it were, the, the bottom end rather than the top. Uh, and also, I, th I thought, why start with the most complex forms of consciousness? You know, the human cortical consciousness is the most complex form uh, that, we are, that we know of. Why not start with the elementary form, this basic prerequisite form, uh, from which all, upon which all the high, other higher forms are, are built? So um, that, that's the title of, of my book, The Hidden Spring, refers to the, the, the upper brainstem, which is, uh, which is from whence con all consciousness springs. The reticular activating system. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, so slightly, just... slightly simplifying it because the reticular activating system um, is not the totality of the, the arousal structures uh, of the brain. Uh, but that, that's the heart of the matter. You know, there, there are a few other structures like, for example, the basal forebrain nuclei and so on, which, which perform exactly the same sort of function. But they're all deep um, subcortical uh, 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 structures um, that have the function of arousing and modulating uh, the rest of the brain. Mm -hmm. Well, a, f a few comments. One. Frank Frank Jackson has been on the podcast a number of times, and it is funny that I mean I think he is kind of annoyed by the Mary in the White Room thought experiment at this point because he is so well known for it, but he's also like totally repudiated it and doesn't agree with it anymore. But also another comment I hadn't realized. I mean, you have this very wonderful, extensive discussion of. Chalmers, Chalmers and the hard problem in your book. I think it might be chapter 11, but I hadn't realized that Chalmers thinks, or at least at one point thought that the hard problem would eventually be solved. I didn't, I hadn't realized that maybe I wasn't reading it <laughs> closely enough myself, but okay. Now re returning to the direction in which we were going. So the 
cortical dimensions of consciousness are generated in some sense by the reticular activating system of the brainstem. And there is a ton here. I mean, a, a tremendous portion of the book is devoted to this, the role of the cortex in consciousness, how this has been investigated with animals and hydroencephalic patients. And hopefully, I mean, maybe we'll get to touch on that, but it all starts with dreaming. And you talked a bit about this at the beginning of our conversation, but the, the history of the study of dreaming is extraordinarily rich and interesting in itself, but the subject of, for another time. But what makes, maybe you could say more about what makes understanding the neurological source of dreaming at all relevant to understanding consciousness and what we've just been talking about. I told you the cat would be uh, no, no, making her I, uh, Some of my best friends are cats. Don't worry about that. Uh, the the um, I said uh, some minutes ago that um, I was interested in dreams because they are conscious states that occur uh, in in the midst of sleep. I mean, it's it's it's, it's truly fascinating that uh, it, it, while we're unconscious, which is a sort of definitional uh, uh, almost of sleep, is that you're unconscious. Um, you know that, that that this unconsciousness is punctuated. By these intensely conscious experiences. So uh, when I sought the brain mechanisms of dreaming, um, let me say first of all, at that time, uh, I began my research uh, on that subject uh, in the mid-1980s. And at that time, um, the standard view was that the brain mechanisms of dreaming were identical with the brain mechanisms of REM sleep. Um, REM sleep is generated, to, just to put it very simply, uh, by uh, mesopontine tegmentum cells, part of the reticular activating system, which um, are cholinergic. So the neurotransmitter, or rather I should say the neuromodulator um, that uh, is sourced there uh, is acetylcholine, uh, which activates the forebrain. Uh, and according to uh, the standard model of that time, which was Alan Hobson's model, uh, it activates the forebrain uh, sort of chaotically and randomly, because this is this is very widespread activation from uh, the mesopontine tegmentum, and the cortex, you know, it, it, to quote uh, uh, Hobson, makes the best of a bad job. It's got all of these sort of active it's, the uh, images, perceptual uh, images of various modalities and thoughts and feelings and whatnot, or, uh, and intentions are all activated. The cortex being the organ of the mind. It, if you activate it, you're going to organize them. You're going to you're going to activate mental contents, and his view was that these are then just joined together. Uh, that there's no that, that's the synthesis. Speaks of activation synthesis. He said the cortex's job is to synthesize these um, randomly activated uh, cortical elements, and he made the point that um, the dream uh, it is so nonsensical, so unrealistic. Uh, so utterly like our ordinary experience, precisely because it's randomly generated. You know, there's no intrinsic meaning. It's not really referring to anything going on in the outside world. This is endogenous activation from the brainstem, and so it creates this chaotic splodge. And he says that the dream is therefore like an ink blot. There's no meaning in it. Uh, it's not psychologically motivated. 
um, you can come to that ink blot after the fact and you can find meaning in it. In other words, you can project meaning into the ink blot, but the ink blot uh, itself is 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 mindless, meaningless, uh, without intentionality. And um, and uh, he also emphasized the fact that acetylcholine is, to use his phrase, motivationally neutral. So my um, studies, uh, which differed from his in that I didn't study rats, but rather human beings, um, the, the main subjects of REM sleep research had been rats and cats, um, which is for all sorts of um, good reasons that, that they, they, they focused on uh, these animals. But um, the downside of, of studying them is they can't speak, and therefore you can't monitor the subjective side. Um, of uh, It takes us back to the very starting point of our discussion. You leave out the subjective observational perspective. So that's why I studied human beings. I wanted to know how are the, how are the contents of dreams altered by damage to different parts of the brain. And that led me to the absolutely... Uh, a surprising discovery that, that patients who lost uh, the capacity to uh, generate REM sleep nevertheless retained the capacity to dream. Uh, so you can dream without having any REM sleep. Uh, and what is more, I found that there were other patients who lost the capacity to dream in whom there was a preservation of REM sleep. So these are not the same thing. REM sleep and dreaming uh, on are are what we call uh, doubly dissociable functions. So my interest then uh, turned to uh, the brain mechanisms that generate dreams as opposed to the brain mechanisms that generate REM sleep. And uh, the main uh, mechanism there turns out to be something called the mesocortical mesolimbic dopamine circuit, which is sourced in the reticular activating system in an area called the ventral tegmental area, and rises up from there um, into subcortical motivational structures and beyond. Now, um, I, I told you what it's called, but another functional name for this system is the brain reward system. I mean, this is anything but motivationally neutral. Uh, it is uh, intensely motivating, positively motivating uh, a system, um, hence the name brain reward system. Uh, it's also been called all sorts of other things, seeking system, wanting system, uh, curiosity, interest, expectancy system, and so on. So um, my uh, search for the brain mechanisms of dreaming uh, brought me to this system, which was, as I've already told you, what made me uh, realize uh, perhaps Freud was onto something when he said dreams were motivated mental states, uh, but also uh, to another fact which is that the reticular activating system, although it has an arousal function, as we've known since 1949, uh, this arousal generated by the reticular activating system is not motivationally neutral. It's not just blank wakefulness. Um, it is intensely affective. Um, uh, this, this circuit is just one example, the one that turns out to be the driving force behind a, a dream generation. Uh, but the same applies to many other reticular activating circuits. So, for example, uh, so the one I'm talking about uh, is, is, is modulates uh, dopamine, uh, but um, the one that modulates serotonin, uh, which plays such a pivotal role in treatment of depression, um, it's also sourced uh, in the 
reticular activating system. Likewise, norepinephrine, uh, which plays... So norepinephrine, you, 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 psychiatrists fiddle with it to treat anxiety. They fiddle with serotonin to treat depression. They fiddle with dopamine to treat uh, psychosis. These are not the sorts of things that anesthetists are interested in. These are the sorts of things psychiatrists are interested in because they have to do with feeling, with emotion, with, with affect. So my dream research led me to the brainstem um, because this system is sourced in the brainstem, but it also led me to the realization that the arousal that emanates from the brainstem is not neutral. It's not just quantity of wakefulness. It's not just a level of consciousness. It has content and it has quality, and uh, that uh, content and quality is affective. So we've known since 1949 that all consciousness is contingent upon brainstem arousal. Uh, but what these findings, and it wasn't just my dream study. My dream study led me to a, a, a body of literature which was then beginning to develop uh, independently of my efforts, uh, led by a, a somebody who ended up becoming my closest colleague in consequence of this, uh, named Jörg Panksepp, uh, that, that he was uh, uh, demonstrating that uh, all basic affective states, raw feeling states, um, are generated from upper brainstem mechanisms. So that's where dreaming fits in uh, and, and brings us back to the topic of the hidden spring. I said to you earlier that I thought we were looking in the wrong place, that we, uh, if you want to understand the mechanism of consciousness, you shouldn't look to the cortex and to vision because the, the, the mechanism of cortical vision is not intrinsically conscious, conscious, but the mechanism of brainstem arousal is intrinsically conscious, and what is more, it produces a, a particular quality of consciousness or range of qualities uh, that we call affect. And so I came to the view um, that if we want to understand consciousness, we need to understand its most basic form, namely affect, and that this is the right place to start, not only because it's its most basic form, but also because it, if you understand the mechanism of feeling, uh, then you have to explain why it feels like something. Unlike vision, you know, you can understand the mechanism of vision without knowing why it has to feel like something to see, but you can't explain the mechanism of feeling without explaining why it has to be felt. If Mary were an affective neuroscientist um, and she understood all the mechanisms uh, of how, uh, the, how a feeling is generated in the brain, she would have to explain, those mechanisms would have to explain why they feel like something. Uh, the, 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 that's the whole point of those mechanisms. So, so that's that's sort of um, that that takes us to pr pretty much the heart of the argument uh, of what the hidden spring is about. Hmm. As an aside, I mean, there's often a, a a questions raised: How can you tell if some sort of organism is capable of consciousness? Now, we're able, as far as I can tell, to tell if a creature is dreaming by examining the whatever's going on in their brain. If is it the case that anything with the reticular activating system in the upper brain stem is capable of dreaming? 
Um, well, the problem is unfortunately more complex than the way you've just framed it. Um, I'm happy to agree with you, uh, but but many people would not be happy to agree with you because they would say, just because you can see uh, that the upper brainstem is activated during sleep uh, uh, and that you, you can see that it is activating the cortex, and you can even see, as we have been able to in recent years using some of the wonderful uh, techniques and methods that we now have at our disposal, you can even show that there are things that were learnt during the day. Uh, you see the same pattern in the hippocampus uh, that night during dreaming sleep as you saw being acquired during the dream day. You can see also the patterns uh, in visual cortex that coincide with the uh, images uh, that human beings report uh, they had seen uh, during the dream. So there's all sorts of good reasons to believe that this sort of neurophysiological um, evidence of dreaming is indeed just that evidence of dreaming. Nevertheless, many people will say, well, that's not a dream. That's just activation of certain parts of the brain. You know, you can't be sure that there's actually a dream attached to that. But if we, if we uh, you know, detach ourselves from that problem of other minds is basically what that is, uh, that, you know, you have to be the dreamer to know whether they're dreaming. If we detach ourselves from that uh, um, philosophical conundrum and just look at it purely scientifically, then yes, indeed, um, all the evidence suggests that all mammals dream. Um, all mammals, uh, uh, all of the uh, um, architecture uh, uh, in the human brain that we know is responsible for dreaming, all of the physiological processes that we know uh, 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 coincide with dreaming, uh, all of those things happen in all mammal species. So there's very good reason to believe that all mammals dream. But then there are other animals with brain stems like fish or amphibians or uh, birds. Do they? <clears throat> do we also have reason to think that they dream? And what I'm getting at is if the same source of dreaming is the source of consciousness, we might have at least good prima facie uh, reasons for like classifying, okay, these are the conscious animals. These are nematodes. We don't count them. They don't have a, they don't have a brainstem. Yeah. I want to draw um, a distinction here between uh, dreaming consciousness and raw feeling. Um, dreams are suffused with feeling, but they also uh, include um, complex uh, uh, perceptual experiences, which are not just feeling. They are they are um, things that we see and hear and think, etc. Um, that's something in addition to the raw feeling. These properties of dreams must be contributed by the cortex. Um, the cortex is where uh, it's, the, it's the activation by the brainstem of these cortical structures, which enable us, if you don't mind me putting it this way, to feel our way into those cognitions. So the cortex is, is producing these complex representational um, gymnastics, uh, and the upper brainstem uh, uh, modulates them, uh, and in this way we, 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 we render them conscious. So if we separate those two bits, uh, I would say all mammals, um, there's every reason to believe that they dream because they have both um, 
upper brainstem structures of the kind I'm talking about, and they have cortex. Um, when it comes to to um, uh, birds uh, and 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 uh, several other vertebrate species, they have a pallium. They have they have a homologue of cortex, uh, but many uh, non-vertebrates have no. I mean, m- many um, uh, vertebrates, uh, non-mammalian vertebrates, uh, don't have uh, anything any cortex to speak of. So I would say that all vertebrates have raw feeling, uh, but I wouldn't I wouldn't claim they all have dreams. I would say they all have raw feeling. And again, I have to say, um, every prediction arising from that hypothesis is confirmed. Um, like, for example, um, you stimulate the structures which generate pleasurable feelings, the brainstem structures which generate pleasurable feelings in humans. You predict if I were to stimulate this structure in a fish, um, it is going to um, it is going to seek to repeat that stimulus. So if you give them a little lever that they can prod with their with their snouts, uh, you predict they will keep prodding that lever that stim- that switches on the electrode because it feels good, um, and that's what they do. And conversely, with aversive with stimuli which uh, are um, generated in the in parts of the brainstem which which produce uh, unpleasant affect, uh, they avoid uh, those uh, those levers. So I'm just giving you one silly little example. In fact, let me give you a better example. Zebrafish, um, or zebrafish as you guys say, um, you, 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 they have the same brainstem architecture, being vertebrates. And um, you put them in a tank, uh, and you put all the food uh, on this side of the tank. They tend to congregate there. That's called conditioned place preference behavior. They prefer to be there because that's where the food is. Now, on the other side of the tent, you introduce cocaine. Uh, cocaine uh, is not good for you. It's not nutritional, uh, but it feels very nice uh, to imbibe cocaine. So uh, a prediction arising from the hypothesis that zebrafish uh, have feelings, um, a prediction is that they will start to congregate where the cocaine is, um, and that's called hedonic uh, place preference behavior. They're conditioned by only by a feeling, not by any anything that's nutritionally uh, good for them, and that's exactly what they do. Uh, the fish head for the cocaine, and the same applies to morphine, uh, and the same applies to amphetamine, and the same applies even to nicotine. Um, Zebrafish like those substances, so you know these are the kinds of. This is the sort of evidence I'm referring to when I say that all of the predictions arising from the hypothesis that all vertebrates have raw feelings. Uh, every time we ask that question, the answer we get is yes. Hmm. Well, going back in time a few minutes uh, to when you raised this distinction between the raw feeling and affect of the brainstem on, on the one hand and then everything else that happens in the cortex, maybe now would be a good time to talk about some of those or some of that very interesting research into cortical consciousness or just more of this distinction between the two and in particular i'd i'd love to hear about those hydroencephalic individuals that i mentioned earlier there's this really interesting uh, well there there are plenty of terrific figures in the book that make it much more readable and engaging and there is this one pair of pictures i think of a 
hydroencephalic girl and she's just sitting there and then in the next picture you've like or not you but somebody placed her baby brother in her hands and you just see her light up and my understanding is that a hydroencephalic individual is missing i don't know if it's all of their cortex but a substantial portion of it but this pair of images really indicates the how the affect or the raw feeling is centered in the brainstem which is still intact in this girl yep well let me say a few things a few preliminary things about that first of all that girl uh that she was a three-year-old kid uh, she had no functional cortex at all um there are some um encephalic children who have remnants of cortex um there's some who don't even have subcortical basal ganglia they have no forebrain not only no cortex but no forebrain at all of course it depends you know the hydranencephaly is not a disease it's a it's a consequence of various different types of disease process so it, it varies in its expression but the kid that uh, is photographed in my book and whose scan is shown in the book has no functional cortex she has a little flange of cortex um, sort of temporal occipital cortex, but it's completely gliosed, um, and there's no white matter connecting that cortex to the thalamus. So it's just it's just a remnant. It doesn't do anything. It demonstrably doesn't do anything. So these, and it's also important to uh, point out that uh, this is not just an individual case. I mean, this is she's typical um, of what you see with these kids with no cortex. They. Not only are they awake, um, you know, in the sense of having a sleep-wake cycle, uh, they, they, they are responsive. The definition, um, I mean, obviously a, a patient in coma uh, is completely non-responsive, uh, but uh, the reticular activating system um, is supposed to produce this level of consciousness, uh, as I said, a sort of quantity blank wakefulness, so uh, the prediction, uh, if the upper brain stem produced only a blank wakefulness, the prediction would be that these kids um, should have a condition which is called persistent vegetative state, also known as non-responsive wakefulness. Please note non-responsive. So these kids wake up, they go to sleep, so they, 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 they have um, a wakefulness, uh, but it's supposed to be blank uh, if the theory that the upper brain stem doesn't have quality and and, and content. Uh, but these kids are responsive. So she responds to her little brother being placed on her lap. She responds, she like all of her uh, equivalent uh, kids with the equivalent condition, she responds in emotionally varied ways uh, and in emotionally uh, varied ways that are that are appropriate to the stimulus. So if you take that little baby brother away from her, she arches her back and she complains. You know, she, she, she's annoyed if you take her brother away from her. If you, if you give her a, a, a fright, she startles uh, and cries, um, you know, and etc. So she's, she's uh, capable of a wide range of basic emotional states. And, um, and, and this is what we see in all of these kids. By the way, we see the same thing in decorticate animals. Uh, it's it, it's been known for a long time uh, that you can you can de demonstrate the presence of all the basic emotions in mammals that have no cortex. 
uh, it's just uh, it's so much more striking when you see it uh, in a human being. Uh, these kids are fully emotionally uh, uh, responsive, and uh, and they 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 do not have any functional cortex. So that for me um, pretty much uh, clinches the 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 deal that 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 uh, we've always known that uh, the basic form of consciousness upon which all other forms um, depend uh, is upper brainstem arousal. These kids show that that upper brainstem arousal is affective arousal. It's emotional arousals, feeling states. And um, it's not only on those kids that we place uh, that, that uh, uh, claim. You know, it's, um, there's, there's many other lines of evidence from other methods um, for example, um, because uh, let me just say, um, many people say, "How do you know that the child doesn't just behave as if she's conscious?" You know, as, as if you know they invoke the kind of philosophical zombie argument. You know, she might look uh, and uh, and behave as if um, she has feelings, but maybe inside nobody's home. So to get around that problem of reportability, she can't report on her. On her mental states, um, we use other methods. Um, I can mention many of them, but let me just mention one here: uh, that if you stimulate with an electrode those deep brainstem structures, as I was saying earlier, uh, we do in fishes, uh, and uh, we get the behaviors that we expect. It's because we know what happens if you stimulate those structures in human beings. Uh, they report intense emotional states. I mean, really intense. Uh, that you, you get the greatest intensity by far and the greatest variety by far of emotional states by stimulating those upper brainstem structures. Stimulate cortical structures, you get really pale imitations of, of feelings, um, more like thoughts about feelings or memories of feelings rather than actual real raw feelings. So it, it's it's there, there's all sorts of lines of evidence that converge on the conclusion that the upper brainstem generates raw feeling itself. Hmm. Well, with a with a book of this depth and richness, there's always so much to talk about, and we could have spent the entire time just talking about. I mean, the first chapter, Freud and Freud and neuroscience, or Freud and dreaming. But in the interest of time and making sure that we get to what consciousness is i i want to turn back really quickly to the hidden spring and something you say in the introduction which is that so we share it with fish and it has an evolutionary origin and you also mentioned that many scientists and philosophers believe consciousness doesn't have a purpose so in philosophical jargon we might say it's epiphenomenal but what then Granted, everything we've just been discussing about affect, for instance, that's where aff affective consciousness stems in the upper brainstem. What is the purpose then that consciousness has? And how does this maybe relate to its evolutionary origin? Okay, thank you. Um, let me start by uh, saying that the fundamental difference between living and non-living things is that uh, living things resist the second law of thermodynamics. In other words, they don't dissipate. Uh, they don't just equalize uh, with the, their environs. They work at staying within certain parameters. 
Um, so, for example, um, we have to stay within a certain temperature range. We have to stay within a certain oxygen range. We have to stay. Oh, is that a hand up? It's a hand. It's a hand. I just wanted to note that in the book when I was reading, I had not made this connection before. Uh, that specifically, that homeostasis is, is sort of anti-entropic in a way. And I just thought that this was like a brilliant connection. I loved it. Thank you. Yes. Sorry for cutting you off. I no, just no, not to put at all. I mean, there. it really is. Uh, it's a fundamental point um, that uh, it, 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 there is literally no living thing that is not governed by homeostasis. It is what distinguishes us from non-living things, uh, that we are actively working against entropy uh, and, 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 and uh, seeking to stay within um, what are our viable bounds. Um, and so homeostasis is what keeps us within those viable bounds. Now, um, we are born with reflexes uh, or instinctual behaviors um, that uh, if we move out of, say, for example, you move out of your preferred temperature range, you get too hot, uh, then those reflexes kick in, you perspire uh, and you pant, you breathe more rapidly and shallowly. Those two things cool you down. Um, and the same applies to all the other homeostats that uh, this is what the autonomic nervous system does. It's got these automatic uh, mechanisms, reflexes, which which respond to homeostatic deviations and maintain you in your viable bounds. Now, um, that's all well and good um, uh, if you are in the sorts of environmental conditions that those reflexes predict. Uh, and if you don't mind, I have to here introduce the word prediction uh, because that's essentially what reflexes are. They are actions that predict uh, returning. If you perform this action, uh, it is predicted you will return to your viable bounds. But this doesn't always happen. So um, that's if you're in unexpected, unpredicted uh, uh, environments. So I'll use the example I use in the book. Uh, imagine, well, normally when you you breathe, you, have, you need your, your, your blood oxygen level uh, in relation to your blood carbon dioxide level have to remain uh, in a certain ratio. And uh, you do that very easily. There's a reflex, uh, which you, your brain is constantly monitoring your, your blood gases. And that reflex expands your intercostal muscles and then lets them go and then expands and then lets them go. And what that does is it brings in oxygen and it expels carbon dioxide brings in oxygen, expels carbon dioxide. You do that all the time automatically until we started speaking about it. Now you weren't aware that you do it. It doesn't need any consciousness. It just happens. Um, but now you find yourself in the unexpected situation of being in a carbon dioxide-filled room. Um, you, you, you've never been in a burning building before, let alone this particular burning building. Um, you don't know what to do. Um, so, what mechanism do you use? Um, the 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 at this point, and this is a crucial point. At the point that you move into unexpected uh, circumstances like that, you suddenly become aware of your need for oxygen. Uh, we call it air hunger or suffocation alarm. Uh, it's a very unpleasant feeling, <laughs> and the purpose of this, uh, I'll say purpose teleologically because 
this is why it was selected in um, the 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 creature that uh, that de- that 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 developed this capacity developed a massive adaptive advantage, which is that you can feel your way through the problem. If you're aware um, of how well or badly you're doing in terms of bringing yourself back into homeostasis, um, then you can predict your demise before it's too late. Uh, you, if say for example you go upstairs, you find that there uh, your air hunger gets worse. Um, that's because there's less oxygen there, but it's the feeling that tells you there's less oxygen there. Then you go downstairs and your your respiratory distress decreases because there's more oxygen there. That feeling has had a very substantial biological causal uh, consequence, which is that you stayed alive rather than died. Um, so that's the adaptive advantage that feeling bestows. Uh, not to put too fine a point in it, it bestows the capacity for choice. Um, otherwise, all that the organism could do is stochastic random behavior. So my reflex isn't working, so I behave random. And then some subset of the of the phenotype uh, will uh, randomly do the right thing. Uh, they're the ones that will survive and reproduce. All the rest uh, will expire. Uh, and then the next generation will have the polymorphism that made uh, that subset of the species do the do the right thing, and so in future they will have a, a, a new reflex, um, which bestows uh, 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 um, advantages on on that subset of the species. But remember, it comes at the cost of mass extinction. Uh, what feeling bestows is the capacity to do uh, something which enables you to remain within your viable bounds, not randomly, but rather by choice, uh, and any choice has to be grounded in a value system. There has to be some value which makes one action good and another action bad. Otherwise, it's not choice, it's random. So the value system, uh, well, actually, the value system fundamentally is the value system of the whole of of um, natural selection, namely that it is good to survive and bad to die. So that value system is broadcast subjectively, and please note, uh, it's broadcast subjectively to the creature, to the organism. Um, this is going well for me or this is going badly for me. Um, uh, 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 the, the feeling tells you you've made the wrong choice. Uh, so you change your mind uh, and you go the other way and then the feeling tells you you've made the right choice. So feeling um, underwrites choice, which in turn uh, yields voluntary behavior. So voluntary behavior um, is the is the enormous advantage uh, that feeling uh, um, uh, contributes, uh, and this is not something epiphenomenal. Uh, this is something with massive, uh, as I said earlier, massive biological causal consequences. Nothing could be more biologically consequential than dying. Um, so uh, uh, the prevention uh, of of dying uh, is is pretty causally consequential uh, as far as um, living things are concerned that's what feeling that's what feeling does that's what it's there for uh, and I say again uh, what I said earlier about David Chalmers's hard problem uh, he says that no mechanistic account of any cognitive function uh, will uh, explain in advance why it feels like something and uh, I emphasize the word cognitive there that's true 
no mechanistic explanation of any cognitive function uh, will uh, explain in advance why it feels like something. But that does not apply uh, to an affective function like feeling. Um, the, the mechanism of feeling just does explain why it feels like something. There's no point of having a feeling if you don't feel it. Uh, it's, the, it's this becoming aware of how well I'm doing. Uh, and it, I need to emphasize again that it is intrinsically subjective. You know, it is about, it's only of the values I speak of are only valuable to the organism. You know, it's, uh, it's not something that applies uh, to the universe. It's something that applies to me. How well am I doing uh, in terms of my survival? Um, uh, and so I'm monitoring my uh, oxygen uh, level uh, and feeling it. Uh, so get, in other words, bestowing value on it uh, so that I can make choices about my behavior. I need to add one further point there, um, which is that feelings uh, are not just valenced. They also have particular quality qualities so that thirst feels different from hunger, feels different from uh, suffocation alarm, feels different from sleepiness, and so on. Um, and that's because we have multiple homeostats in our bodies, um, in our brains. Um, the, 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 that's because we don't just have some overarching thing called need, need to survive. It is, it is uh, compartmentalized in terms of need for oxygen, need for water, you know, a, a need for sleep, a need for this, need for that. And you need to know which need is out of kilter. So it's, you have to treat each of these needs as categorical variables. Forgive me just for a moment going a little bit into math there. Uh, continuous variables uh, are reducible to a common denominator. Categorical variables are not. Eight out of 10 of sleep uh, and eight out of 10 of thirst are not the same thing. It's not 16 out of 20 of total need. Uh, you have to treat them separately. You have to both sleep and drink. Uh, you can't say, well, I'll reduce my total need by only sleeping. I'll skip drinking. You know, you'll die if you do that. So, so these different needs have to be treated as categorical variables. And categorical variables are qualitatively distinctive. As I said, eight out of 10 of sleep and eight out of sleepiness and eight out of 10 of thirst are qualitatively different. So these needs that are broadcast in the form of affect are not only intrinsically valenced, in, a, in other words, they have an intrinsic goodness and badness for the organism to the organism, but also they have an intrinsic quality. They are intrinsically, necessarily, qualitatively distinctive. So why I'm banging on about all of this is I'm trying to show that a mechanistic account of how feeling works uh, just uh, naturally gives rise to all of the phenomenal properties um, that uh, we associate with 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 earlier, which are supposed to be irreducible to mechanistic accounts. <clears throat> there are two figures that I think are that should be brought up right now. And one, I'm just curious, the first is Daniel Dennett. I wonder if your path has ever crossed with him just because I imagine that he would be very sympathetic to your research and the role that you think affect plays in consciousness just because as far as I recall, he thinks of consciousness as this constellation of many different features of the brain that just sort of coincide together and we sort of 
mistake them maybe for one magical sort of thing happening in the Cartesian theater. And then the other figure that I wanted to ask about was Carl Friston, because I know he's a very important collaborator of yours among many, but your work with him plays a major role in this aspect or dimension of the investigation. Well, um, if our, our viewers or listeners want to uh, go into that more deeply than I'm going to tell you now, um, they should look at um, the Journal of Consciousness Studies. Um, they had a what they call a symposium, although it's not in person, it's in writing, um, about my book uh, last year. Uh, yes, 2022. Um, and they invited commentaries from uh, Daniel Dennett and Cole Friston. So you can read their views of my book uh, in the Journal of Consciousness Studies. Interestingly, uh, there was also a com commentary there by Tom Nagel, which 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 may which may interest some of your your philosophical audience. Um, well, you've um, got a great host of commentators. Yes, yes, uh, there, there were there were a couple of others too. So um, um, Dan Dennett, yes, he's very sympathetic, as as you will see when you read his uh, his commentary. Um, but I, um, I, I must say there's one point on which he and I disagree, or rather I should say there's one point on which I disagree with him. Um, I, in my response to his commentary, I, I, I touched on this, but um, uh, I, I haven't spoken to him since then. Uh, so I don't know what, what, he, uh, what his response to my uh, response would be. But I drew attention to the fact that... Um, I mean, I really don't want to obscure the fact that he and I uh, were substantially in agreement on, you know, and he was very um, positive. But just for the sake of, uh, of clarity, I think that this does need pointing out. His view uh, is that, that consciousness is an illusion. Uh, you know, he speaks of uh, the, the, the user illusion uh, of consciousness. It's a, it's a user interface that... Um, that the we, Cartesian theater, I meant. Yes, yes, that's it. So I, I'm, I, I understand exactly. I mean, you've read my book. Chapter ten deals with this: the way in which you know we we are in fact interacting with a virtual reality or, or, or that, that we are that we've constructed from the brain's own uh, uh, ingredients, as it were, uh, and and uh, it's, it's sort of a Kantian picture. Uh, I'm, I'm very um, very um, sympathetic with that. But uh, when it comes to feelings, there's something special about feelings. Uh, you can't ever say uh, that you have the illusion that you're in pain or you have the illusion uh, that you are depressed. I mean, you just are depressed. Uh, if, you're, if you're depressed, you're depressed. You might say it's not warranted. Uh, you, might, you might say, I think that uh, you, 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 uh, you know, you're, you're in pain, but I don't find any problem uh, in your, uh, you know, in your peripheral nerve, so you shouldn't be in pain. And the patient says, "Well, I'm sorry, doc, I am in pain. Uh, that's just because pain is what it is." So I just want to make that point: is that I think there is something special about feelings, um, in that they can't be illusory. Uh, they, 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 they. Uh, I think when it comes to the outer world, and uh, that's another whole story which we probably won't have time to get into, but. 
feeling applied to perception. I feel like this about that. Um, you know, th- 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 there's a, that's a different story. But I feel like this is just what it is. Uh, it, it can't be illusory. It is. It's because the function of feeling is to tell you, you know, how uh, how you feel about this the situation you're in. Now, um, Carl Friston. Um, Carl Friston played a, 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 a huge part in the, my life in the last uh, 10 years. It started with, um, well, it, it progressively in the last 10 years because it started with an article that he wrote um, in 2013. Um, it was called, it was in one of the journals of the Royal Society. The, I forget the title of the journal, uh, but the, the paper uh, had the wonderful title, Life as We Know It. Um, and uh, it was an attempt, by a, a successful attempt by Friston to reduce to uh, a mathematical formalism uh, the, the causal mechanism of homeostasis. Uh, that, that's basically what life as we know it uh, refers to the fact I was referring to earlier, you know, that how fundamental uh, homeostasis is uh, to life. Uh, and he reduced, uh, in a set of equations, he reduced uh, homeostasis to uh, mechanistic causal laws just like anything else in nature. That's not surprising. Homeostasis is not complicated. You know, it's a, it's a pretty simple thing that you, these are your viable bounds. Uh, if you're moving out of your viable bounds, you've got to get back into your viable bounds. Uh, Friston uh, added that that means you have to have a model of, of, of yourself in the world you have to have a model of how the world works so that you can predict, if I do this, it will have those sensory consequences. That's why you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a model of intentionality, actually. Of that why, we, why we do what we do, um, it's not random. It's designed to bring us back into homeostasis. So you have to have a model, um, a, 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 a causal model, in other words, a predictive model um, of what 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 consequences will flow from what actions given my model of the causal relations uh, um, uh, of, of of things outside of myself um and uh, so he made this he made this little set of equations showing how this is how homeostasis works that there's a there's a, a deviation from a, a prior preference point uh, that this um this releases a action uh, based in the predictive model, uh, which then uh, brings uh, about a sensory response. And then there's a measurement of the gap between the sensory response that was expected and the sensory response that actually uh, flows from your action. Uh, and that's called an error signal. And that error signal is used to update the predictive model. So it learns from its actions. That's basically what he showed in in that article. Now, you can imagine my excitement because I had reached the conclusion that that consciousness is at bottom raw feeling uh, and that feeling is at bottom an extended form of homeostasis. And now here's this article which reduces homeostasis to you know mathematical formalisms. And I thought, oh my God, you know, if you can do that, of course it must be possible to write. Uh, equivalent equations for this extended form of homeostasis that gives rise to feeling. So that was, um, although he and I had 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 several conversations about affect uh, before, because uh, I, I was uh, 
you know, he works within a tradition of computational neuroscience. Computational neuroscientists, uh, when I first met Preston, weren't talking about feelings. Um, you know, the, that's not their thing. Um, so th this culminated, our, our interactions culminated in us writing a paper together, which did just what I said a moment ago. We we, we, we developed an, an, an extension of his original formalisms to account for for um, for feeling. And in this way, um, you know, it's like the culmination of what I was saying earlier about charmers when I was saying that you can do normal science here. Uh, you can you can even do uh, you know mathematical, quantitative, mechanistic, uh, reductive science about feeling. And uh, so that paper he and I published in 2018 um, was called "How and Why Consciousness Arises." And in a sense, my book, um, The Hidden Spring, uh, which came out three years later, was just unpacking the, the arguments that he and I worked out together in 2018, just unpacking them in greater detail. Hmm. Well, one final question on which to end. Returning to the hard problem of consciousness, and where I mean, where I think the heart of the philosophical debate lies is granting for the moment that these neurological structures, so the reticular activating system of the brainstem, the cortex, do the things that you or other scientists say they do, carry signals and so forth, represent colors in the world. How mechanically does this at all produce the subjective sense of feeling or the qualia? You used the word intrinsic earlier and maybe we could just unpack what that intrinsic means a bit more or maybe it's just not reducible any further it just is but i think that's a, a nice way on which to end sure let me begin by saying that i think the sense of um puzzlement that comes with the hard problem uh, would never have arisen had we started addressing the question um of the uh, physical basis of consciousness uh, by looking at raw feeling. Uh, it it, I think it's only because we started in the wrong place uh, with a function that isn't intrinsically conscious that we became puzzled about, well, why is this thing conscious? Because it doesn't seem to need to be conscious. Its mechanism doesn't demand it or explain it. Uh, so uh, had we started with raw feeling, I don't think anybody would ever have formulated the problem. I think the problem uh, just doesn't arise. You know, why Why does the mechanism that generates feeling feel like something? You just say, duh, what do you mean? You know, of course, the mechanism of feeling uh, feels like something. Um, I want to also add, uh, for the sake of clarity, that my metaphysical position, and I think anybody working in neuropsychology has to have a metaphysical position on the mind-body problem because it is a metaphysical problem. And my metaphysical position is that of a dual aspect monist. So I don't think that the physiological goings on in the brain produce uh, the conscious experience in the same way that uh, the liver produces bile. I don't think consciousness is excreted by neurons. Uh, I think that there's an underlying mechanism uh, that's the monist mechanism, uh, which uh, explains uh, the two sets of observable data, the objective uh, perspective on 
the behavior of the brain and the subjective perspective on the being uh, of that same thing. Uh, so I, I, I think that these are two different ways in which we uh, can um, observe, two different observational perspectives upon one and the same mechanism. So it's crucial to uh, to, you, to answering your question that you understand what I mean by intrinsic. Uh, I mean that this is a mechanism described uh, in the language of mathematics. Uh, in, uh, Galileo wonderfully said, the book of nature is written in the language of mathematics. Uh, and uh, it's, it, it's, it, it, I emphasize that it's an, uh, this abstract language. It's not a physiological language or a psychological language. It's an abstract, it's a language of the, 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 in which you can articulate the laws that, dis, that, that govern both sets of observables. You need one set of laws that govern both sets of observables. And so what I've been trying to articulate in The Hidden Spring is the mechanism, the causal mechanism, the lawful causal mechanism uh, that generates uh, a, a, that that gives rise to a system that has to monitor its own state uh, in the ways that I've just described. It's a self-organizing system. That is to say, it's a homeostatic system that is acting uh, in, intentionally in order to achieve uh, desired outcomes. Uh, it's a self-organizing system which distinguishes itself from its environment uh, because it has to, otherwise you can't function homeostatically. You need to sequester yourself from the environment in order to maintain your existence separately from the environment. You can't just equalize with the environment. You have to maintain, for example, your body temperature, not equalize with the one outside, etc. So it's a self-organizing system uh, which is monitoring its own states uh, in, in, in matters that are existentially consequential for the system. Uh, and those states are just intrinsically valence. They're they just necessarily are good or bad for the system, and they must be categorical variables because we have multiple needs of that existential kind. Uh, and uh, when you describe such a system, you have just described a system that feels like something. If you allow yourself to take the viewpoint of the system, that's an absolutely fundamental point. Uh, I think that that's the Rubicon we have to cross I'm glad we started our conversation in the way that we did because I said uh, what frustrated me about the neuroscience of the 1980s that I was trained in uh, was that we only treat the brain as an object. We don't treat it as a subject. We thereby leave out not only half the picture, but the most interesting half of the picture. So if you allow yourself uh, as a scientist uh, to accept that there is such a thing as the point of view of the system, then some systems feel like something and some systems do not. Um, and systems that feel like something have the dynamics that I've just described. That's what I mean by in, uh, the intrinsic mechanism of, of feeling. Well, a final word about your book. So <laughs> consciousness is such a talked about topic that it's virtually impossible to do something new and interesting in the area, at least from my perspective. But the Hidden Spring is really just undoubtedly an exception. I mean, there's there's no fluff. It's rigorous. Uh, there are really countless new and interesting threads. And 
I think our conversation really demonstrates that. So thanks so much for writing this book and thanks even more for talking about it with me. Thanks very much. I don't know why anybody talks about any other topic than brain mechanisms of consciousness. But thank you very much, Robinson. I've enjoyed our conversation. And also, thanks for those kind remarks you made. Thank you. Hold on, Geeslings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats. Please do so.